for UK investors only. This podcast is in association with Janice Henderson Investors. For promotional purposes, capital at risk. The past performance of an investment is not a reliable guide to its future performance. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Master Investors podcast, the show where we interview real-life master investors. In today's show, I'll be talking to Mike Curley, who manages the Henderson Far East Income Trust. We'll be discussing the outlook for investors in Asia and the Far East against a backdrop of increasing uncertainty as a result of intensifying trade tensions between the US and China. But specifically, we'll be talking about what makes the region attractive from the perspective of an income investor. Here's the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening. To begin with, Mike, just give us a bit of um, an introduction to yourself and um, how you managed to get into uh, fund management. That's a that's a big question. I started in, oh God, 1985, uh, Montague Investment Management, as was, subsequently came Invesco. Started back office, went from back office to front office in 93, focusing on Asia and emerging markets. Uh, and I've been looking at Asia and emerging markets since. Uh, joined Henderson 15 years ago this year. And Asia's been my, my bag ever since 93, really. Right. Well, that's good stuff because uh, we're here to talk about uh, investing in the Far East, specifically for, for income. When you look at Asia at the moment, I suppose the elephant in the room is the, the trade war between China and the US. What's your take on that at the moment? And who do you think is best placed to, to win the trade war, if we, can, if we can say that? Because obviously, we always say that nobody wins from a tra- trade war, don't we? I mean, I always thought that, you know, that ultimately US and China would get together and sort something out. And I've thought that through most of the last 18 months. But to be honest, in the last six, the further we go down this route, the, the, the more I see it, it being difficult for both Trump and Xi to come out as winners, which they need to do mm. uh, for their own domestic audience. So, as you say, there's no winners. I suppose it's just the degree of losers. And if this tit for tat continues, then I think it broadens out and widens. Um, so at the moment, it's focused on technology, starting off with Huawei, but now looks to be moving into surveillance and other areas. At the moment, the Chinese haven't really responded uh, outside of the tariffs, but the potential is enormous because you know a lot of American companies sell a lot of goods in, in China. Mm. And if you go back a few years and look at what happened with Korea when there was a spat between Korea and China, and you look at the impact on companies like Hyundai Motors, Kia, Samsung, etc. You know, it's very possible that nationalistic fervor moves Chinese away from American-related products. Right. Also interesting about the Chinese airlines have started suing Boeing for the 737. Max debacle. There's also various other materials which potentially could come into this. So I hope it doesn't go down that route. I really do. And and how's that impacted the equity market so far in Asia? Well at the moment it's um everyone's looking for for losers and winners because there are clearly winners in this as well. Huawei is a, is a big company with uh, lots of fingers in lots of pies. But if they don't su- so successful then there's other companies like Samsung Electronics which may pick up on the on the phone side and not impacted by these wars. I mean, clearly, technology is the big loser across the region, not just China. Taiwan, in particular, has been hit hard because it's a very tech-centric market, and a lot of these Taiwanese companies manufacture in China. Mm. So they're the ones who are being impacted at the moment. And what are the fundamentals of the Asian markets that sort of draw you in as, a, as an income investor? Well, lots of good companies, lots of variation, diversity, 
So my universe is Australia, which is fairly developed, all the way through to India, which is obviously less so, uh, and lots of different variations within that in the middle. So when you compare it to other markets around the world, the diversity of company and the diversity of income is much better than it would be, say, I mean, the UK is quite uh, concentrated from its income perspective. Asia is the complete <clears throat> reverse. And you also got this selection of companies which generally are producing a lot of cash, don't pay out that many dividends at mm. the moment. So the potential to see your dividends grow is a really strong one. And what about the dividend culture? Because as you say, a lot of Asian companies haven't historically paid out a lot of earnings as dividends. Is that something that's beginning to, to increase? It is, slower than I hope, because there's still a belief that among Asian corporates is they operate in a, in a growth area and dividends and growth don't necessarily go hand in yeah, hand. Yeah, sure. But you know, as companies mature over time, they generate cash, they become more profitable, economies of scale, etc., then you know they don't need to make the same levels of investment to generate the same levels of growth. And as a result, cash flow rises, balance sheets improve. And it's at that point, or we've been at that point for five years or more even, but the next five, 10, 15 years, I think as companies mature, that'll come back to us shareholders as, as dividends. Mm. And looking at the, the sort of demographic backdrop, it's, it's a bit of a mixed picture, isn't it? Because you've got countries sort of like Southeast Asian countries that are a lot younger populations, whereas you've got China and Japan, which should, I mean, obviously Japan's the extreme one where the population's mm. um, aging quite rapidly. And then China's also aging now as a result of the, uh, the one-child policy. How does that impact your investment outlook? Yeah, it's a really good question um, because you're, you're right. The demographics are different across the whole of, of Asia. I mean, as you say, China now is, is seeing a, a shrinking working population rather than a growing one. Actually, it's come at the right time, to be honest, because they're um, going through a reform of the state-owned enterprises, which is actually means that the need for new employ uh, uh, for new workers is actually lower going forward than it would be because the state employs a lot of people. Right. So if they continue to have a growing population while they're reducing the employment in the state sector, then then it's then you worry about unemployment in China. I mean, demographics can be, is a big subject. It can be a positive and, and it can be a negative. It all depends on whether these countries can actually generate enough jobs to keep the domestic populations employed. In India, very young population, but the economy is slowing and they're not generating enough jobs, so you worry about unemployment. So demographics there could actually end up being a headwind rather than a tailwind. Yeah. But I totally understand in the longer term, young, younger generations uh, of population should improve growth prospects. Mm. But you, know, you have to weigh that up. And looking at the, the portfolio breakdown in terms of geography, the, the number one on the list is China. What's, what's your take on China at the moment? Because a lot of people are sort of steer clear of China, don't they, because of the corporate governance issues. What's, what's your view on that? Well, we've done, we've done a lot of work on, on corporate governance, looking at state sector against the private sector. And, and the bottom line is, is if you're an investor in China, you need to be investing in the areas which are being supported by government, whether it's private or public. And even if you invest in public companies, you need to make sure that those public companies are acting in the, your shareholders' best interests, i.e. you're acting alongside the government rather than against it. Now, a lot of people will stand in the distance and wave their finger and say, look, China's not investable. We take a much more pragmatic view. There's a lot of good companies, and we know in 10 years' time, this will probably be the largest economy in the world. 
and the stock market will be considerably larger than it is now, a much bigger allocation to global managers' portfolios. So for us, we need to identify each individual company, take it on its merits, look at the governance, look at where it's investing, which types of industries, whether that's supported or whether it's it's not, etc. And I think, to be honest, China offers the best combination of opportunity, value and income in the region right now. Right. And what about Australia? Because that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's not necessarily a company what people would associate with Asia. But yeah, it's actually sort of, it's geared into the growth of Asia because of its proximity to Asia. That's true. And and obviously resources. I mean, Asia is, is resource hungry. And Australia has not many people, but a lot of area and a lot of uh, stuff in the ground. I mean, we like the mining companies in Australia, and but they're not really sensitive to the Australian economy. In fact, what most of what we own in Australia is not that sensitive to the domestic economy. Uh, so we own a lot of uh, um, companies that operate either globally, regionally, etc. We're not particularly positive on Australia as a whole. I think it's got real challenges, right. but there's some great companies there. And what about the rest of the portfolio? What, what other regions are you attracted to at the moment? Well, you, you can put them in two baskets. You can put the developed and the, the emerging. So the developed would also include things like Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, to a degree. And then the less developed would be your Southeast Asian countries, um, uh, including India and Indonesia, Philippines, etc. Generally, for us, high yield comes from the mature markets. Dividend growth comes from the emerging markets. The only market that's slightly different there is Korea, which is a bit like Japan, it's developed, but coming off a very low base in terms of dividends. So mm. for us, that's a dividend growth market rather than a dividend yield market. It's difficult for us to, to, to say, well, look, this country's great and this country isn't. From an income perspective, it really does come down to sector and stocks right. and where they are in that growth cycle and, and, and that dividend culture. So in terms of your, your asset allocation then, are you a bottom-up investor? You don't you don't say, you know, this this country is looking good at the moment. I want X amount of the portfolio in there. It's, it's just done on a company-by-company company basis. Very much so. You know, we're looking at cash flow, and we want that cash flow to come back to us as dividends. So you can't make a top-down allocation and say, like, I really like China, because within that, there's going to be companies that fit that and companies that clearly don't. Mm. So we have to look at individual companies. I mean, we, we, we like looking at things. So the, the tech, the internet theme is a great theme. But if we can't find companies that do what we want them to do mm. to, to match that theme, then then we just don't or can't own them. And what about sector-wise? Um, you've got a lot in financials at the moment. Mm. Financials is a tough one because it's a very big part of the market. Um, the banking sector across all, all, all the countries is, is very well represented. But some of them are more attractive than others. I and mean, we like the Chinese banks. Now, some people will put their hands up in the air and go, what the hell are you doing in Chinese banks? But, you know, they're very cheap. And again, we think they're acting, um, they're doing what the, the, the state wants them to do, uh, which is not only in the country's best interest, but also in our interests as shareholders. Mm-hmm. We don't like Australian banks because we think the domestic market in Australia is, is challenged. The property market's way too high right. and our exposure to mortgages is also very high. We like Singapore banks. We don't like Thai banks. Uh, it really does vary. But on the whole, we prefer not plain vanilla. So we prefer investment banks over commercial banks, etc. So it's it, it's a mishmash. And what about the banking culture in Asia as well? Because it's, it's different to Europe and the US, isn't it? They don't actually lend out as much of their deposit base as we do over here. I think that's a very good thing. Considering what happened you know, 10 years ago with the GFC, 
and the problems the banks got into with over leverage, um, et cetera, and various exotic products, which we all know how that ended. Luckily, Asian banks aren't going down that route. Even the ones in the more developed markets don't go down that route. And I think that's a very good thing. You're absolutely right about um, <clears throat> banks lending out less than a deposit base, um, which gives you a certain degree of certainty about liquidity and ongoing stability within the banking sectors across the region. The next two on the list, uh, telecoms and property, they would be considered income stocks in the UK, wouldn't they, in the US. What's the outlook for dividend growth like in, in the telecoms sector, for instance? Because I'm guessing that's there's a bit more of a growth aspect over in, in places like Asia than there is in the more developed markets. You're right. But again, it does vary. You know, Some of the telecom markets are just as highly penetrated, whether it's mobile or fixed line, broadband, etc., as they are in the UK. Right. Others aren't. So the, the ones that aren't, you know, China is still, I mean, everyone has a mobile phone, but clearly not everybody uses as much as they could do. Right. So there is a growth angle there. Indonesia, much less so, uh, much less penetrated, much more opportunity to, to realise growth. Telecoms is a strange one because it should be great growth. I mean, let's face it, everything we do online needs a backbone yeah. <laughs> of telephone equipment. So if we don't have it, we have no internet. Now, everyone gets really excited about the internet and the growth through the internet and usage and blah, 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 blah. The problem is, is that the telecom companies never make any money out of it because they either competed away to get the lowest price for this, that, and the other, or they're just inept and, or they're regulated away. But that's not always the case. So if you, if you take that view and say, well, look, telecoms is the enabler of the internet generation, then it should be a growth area but you have to take it market by market. And what about specific companies? Uh, what have you been buying and selling lately? I mean, our, our big belief, my big belief is that we want to own consumption across Asia in general, certainly in the emerging parts of Asia as the, the upgrading cycle, as people earn more, disposable incomes grow, they will either consume more or they'll upgrade to the next highest product. And we've been trying to get exposure to that, well, ever since I've been managing <laughs> money. But what prohibits me from doing so is the valuations that everyone, a lot of other people want to do the same thing. And, you know, the valuations of some of these stocks got very, get very high. Yeah. Now, going back to the end of last year, when the market sold off, there were stories in the paper that, that China was never going to consume again. The Chinese consumer <laughs> was going to fall. So products around the world fell. So, and the stocks related to those also fell. So we got the opportunity to own some of the companies which we couldn't own because of valuation in that period. And it's worked out quite well for us. So things like uh, we own uh, Kuechao Maltai, which is a Baiju's um, fire liquor, if you like. You right. know, very high end, <laughs> very high alcohol content drink. Very popular in China. Not anywhere else because it tastes awful. <laughs> but it's very popular in China. So we own that after it came back about 20% in the fourth quarter. We own Treasury Wine Estates, which is an Australian company, but obviously makes wine penfolds and various Wolf Blasts, various other brands, sells a lot into China. So it's that kind of upgrading theme what mm. we're trying, trying to get exposure to in the, in the portfolio. We had that opportunity in the fourth quarter. And one addition in particular that I was looking at was the Vietnam Opportunity Fund. Mm. And that's another investment trust, isn't it, that's listed in the UK. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we, we, like, we like Vietnam. Um, but Vietnam's a tricky market to invest in because there are restrictions. Mm. Liquidity is not great. There's foreign limits on a lot of stocks. So once they get the foreigners own 30% of a stock, then if you're a foreigner and you want to buy stocks in that market, you will have to pay a premium, which can right. be anything up to 20%. So it's difficult, but it's a great market. It's 
China 20 years ago, potentially. And it's actually quite a big beneficiary of what's going on with trade as people relocate out of China into into other areas. And Vietnam is a big beneficiary Mm. of that. So we like this market. So the question is, is how do we get exposure to it? And as I said to you before, we're bottom up. So that buying a trust to us is not quite, doesn't (laughs) quite sit with what we do. But we're buying, we've done a lot of work with the manager of, of Vietnam Opportunities Fund about what he's exposed to. And some of it's actually private companies pre-listing, which is something we can never get exposure to. So, right. And we're buying at a 17% discount, whereas if we bought it in the market, we'd be buying at a premium. So to us, the valuation, the fact they now pay a dividend, we get exposure to the uh, unlisted sector, which we couldn't do, to us was quite compelling. Okay. And what about the sell side? What have we been selling? We've actually been reducing banks, although banks is still a part of, of the portfolio. Um, a year or so ago, we the expectation was that interest rates would rise and banks would benefit from that. I think clearly as we've gone into 2019, that it's pretty obvious that rates around the world probably aren't going up anytime soon. If anything, they're coming lower, (laughs) which is negative for banks. So we've been reducing our exposure to the ones which are most sensitive, if you like, to, to interest rates, both domestically and global. Outside of that, the tech sector, which we like on a longer term basis, we think is really quite challenged even before the trade war started. It's pretty obvious that the demand for Apple products is, has been pretty weak and that's been borne by, out by their results. Samsung isn't doing that great either. And we're in this phase of transition into new products, which isn't necessarily great for volume um, mm. in, in the tech sector. So we've been selling down our exposure to hardware manufacturers across Asia as well. And you, you actually do some option writing, don't you, to supplement income? And that accounted for, I think it was 11% of revenue in the first half. Tell us a bit about that and what investors should be aware of in terms of what implications that has for the trust. So 11% of revenue in the first half is, is, is over the full year, it would be less than that because we have less dividend income in the first half than we do in right. the second half. So it looks high for the first <laughs> half, but usually it's around about, about 8 to 9% of our income comes from derivatives. And the whole idea of this is making this portfolio as income efficient as possible. We are an income fund. Our shareholders love the fact that we pay a high dividend. So we want to make sure that we're as efficient as possible within the portfolio to be able to deliver that goal. So the key of what we do is invest in companies. We have target prices based on cash flow analysis. But if we have a stock in the portfolio which potentially has 10% upside to our target price, we can write an option which matches the target price we want to sell the stock at with the strike price of the option. Right. So it's like making revenue from a normal investment decision. So how does the natural yield of the portfolio compare with the, the yield once you take into account option writing? Option writing, uh, well, the yield on the portfolio is about 5%. Right. But the distributable yield currently is just over 6 And that's the, the dividend's grown for quite a few years now, hasn't it? Since um, 2009, it's grown at 6% compound. Um, which was numbers we put in the annual report, just over 6%. To be honest, in recent years, it's, it, it, the growth has been a little bit less. Partly the, the, the things that could make a difference to that, the underlying growth in dividends in Asia is still really strong, but sterling could have an impact. And as we yeah, know, sure. sterling's been all over the place, um, generally weak, but not always weak. Mm. So when it's weak, that's great for us, that, that supplements our income. But So the growth in the income of the portfolio has been stronger than the growth of the dividend we've been distributing because we don't want to say, well, you know, we've had this bonus from sterling weakness. Mm. We don't want to extrapolate that and say, well, you know, this is something we can rely on in the future because clearly we can't. 
And part of the, the benefits of running a, an investment trust structure is that you can smooth out the income over, over time. Mm. So obviously, like, like you've just been saying, if, you, know, if you, get, you get some sterling strength, you can smooth out that rough period with the, the revenue reserves from the fund. Well, that's the idea. You know, we have, and the board has no intention of, um, you know, the chairman says every year that you know, the dividend will be at least what it was the previous year. So, you know, the idea for us of, of cutting a dividend is something which is highly unlikely. And we have that revenue reserve there to give us that buffer to, mm. to ensure that that's the case. So, you know, in times when sterling's, when sterling's weak um, and we get this uh, additional revenue, then that will go into reserves, as you say, to help us smooth out future distributions. And what about gearing? Because you're only geared at 2% at the moment, but you can actually gear up to 20%, I think? We can, but we have a facility in place uh, for 10. So we right. can go up to 20, right. but the facility is in place for 10% of, okay. of assets. Why are we only at two? <laughs> because gearing to us is not is not structural. Uh, we could gear, and obviously the income in the portfolio would benefit from that. Mm. Um, but I think, and from talking to our shareholders, that actually the, the, the shareholders don't want the increased volatility that gearing would give you because it's an income fund. Most people like this, the, the defensive nature of income, the steadiness of that distribution. Mm. And if you use gearing to, 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 to get that, that goes against, I think, what most people, what most shareholders want. And so we use gearing on an opportunistic basis. If we find an opportunity to buy a stock mm. and we don't want to sell anything in the portfolio, then that's when we use gearing. Gearing for us is not directional. So let's say that as a result of the, the trade wars, that equity prices fall quite substantially in, in Asia. Where would you be looking to invest if that happened, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, if they fell substantially, we'd be looking at these structural areas which get sold off on short-term concerns, which, but the structural case is, is, is still intact. So, you know, technology, we're not positive on it at the moment, but, you know, share price fell a long way, then you've got to think to yourself, is Huawei going bust? We don't think so. <laughs> so, the, I mean, Huawei's not listed, but there's lots of supplies to Huawei which have fallen out, you know, babies out with the bathwater kind of thing. Yeah. They really have fallen quite a lot. And if this continues, then there are going to get some stocks there where they start pricing in the fact that these companies are going to disappear completely, which we think, again, is probably unlikely. So I think technology is the sector, which is the one that's at the forefront of everything that's trade-related at the moment and where the potential for, for real fallout in prices could materialise. Mike Curley, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before investing in any investment referred to in this podcast, you should satisfy yourself as to its suitability and the risks involved. Nothing in this podcast is a recommendation or solicitation to buy, hold or sell any investment. Tax assumptions and reliefs depend upon an investor's particular circumstances and may change if those circumstances or the law change. Issued in the UK by Janice Henderson Investors, Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by Henderson Investment Funds Limited. Registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE, and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Janice Henderson, Janice, Henderson, and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC, 
or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright, Janice Henderson Group, PLC.